two of our conversation on things that have happened recently that have caught our eye. Uh, I don't think it's possible to give it much more of a theme than that at the moment, but I'm sure we'll come up with something. You're listening to Media Democracy. It's a podcast about politics, the media and the politics of the media. And I'm joined by my co-host Tom Mills. So hello. Oh, sorry, I just did. Yeah. Hello. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, Tom... I'm, too, I'm too keen. I'm just so keen to say hello to you. I'm the, the friendly face of the show. He is. He's good cop. We've established that already. Um, So, Tom, we have already talked uh, this morning about uh, the platforms, about the BBC. Um, We wanted to finish up uh, the chat we're having today with um, some reflections on Peter Oborn's Open Democracy piece. Yeah. So why don't you start by uh, giving a very brief sort of synopsis for our listeners on uh, what, what Peter had to say and yeah, then sure. uh, we can go from there and talk a bit about the fallout um, and the various um, autoimmune responses uh, from the establishment media. Yeah, I mean, it, it was an interesting piece. I mean, I mean, the first first thing about this is is an observation that if I think one of the reasons this piece has been picked up, actually, is it is it is written by an insider, you know, a working journalist, but one who's become increasingly kind of at odds with the political culture of the media. Um, and he's been on sort of an interesting journey, to use a cliche I think we used in the first half, as a, like, you know, because he's gone from um, being a sort of classic establishment Tory to one who's become came increasingly disillusioned with you know, the British establishment under Blair, really, the, the use of spin. Um, and then I think, you know, gradually became more critical of the media as well and had a run in. Uh, around with what was it the telegraph group he, he was at which he left which um over it's uh, he wanted to get this uh, story published around hsbc yes that's right place yeah. because of ab- advertising influence um and then has, has written this story which is, is is similarly sort of outspoken i mean i won't go into the details of the story because they're not i don't think they're terribly interesting i mean the, the more interesting element is is the, is the themes that he touches on uh the the title of uh, the article which is over at Open Democracy because of course nobody else would actually publish it um, but Open Democracy has been a really useful um, outlet for places which don't seem to be it which you know the basically the British establishment media won't touch yeah. it's called British journalists have become part of Johnson's fake news machine and he he gives an examples of a, a number of stories which are based on briefings from Downing Street that actually turned out to be substantively incorrect so uh, and, and they're about the sort of political jostlings uh, around Brexit. But the, the sort of the, the, the nub of it really is the, the 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 close relationship between senior journalists uh, at the BBC, at in in the press, um, at ITV, and this, the spinners in Downing Street, basically. So this is building on some of the stuff which Oborn had written. Uh, around the way that Campbell was running operations under New Labour um, and the, the the inability, as he saw it, of, the, of journalists to, to challenge um, people whose job was essentially to, you know, political management and spin. And he, what's interesting about the piece is that he actually specifically names journalists. So 
there was a response. I mean, the, the, the first response, I think, was from Robert Peston, uh, who, who, was, who was named in the piece. And he responds as basically a defence of this kinds of insider journalism. I think in the, the first half of the show, we, we talked a bit, didn't we, about um, Nick Robinson and his uh, relationship to the the establishment. Were we doing that on air or was that before no, we started? No, we just went beforehand because there, there are echoes. Oh, yeah, you're right. There are echoes in, in sort of Peston, what we, we can call the Peston defence, because I think it will be a, a timeless example. I haven't read it, obviously, but I'm sure it's timeless. <laughs> well, let, before you dive in, like, so, yeah, I mean, you can get a feel for it already because the, the, the title of it is... My job is to draw back the veil. Right. right so right. And so it, it echoes an earlier defence of the kind of lobby press pool um, journalism where Nick Robinson was criticised when George Bush visited London. Um, and there were criticisms of how supine the, the press pack were. It was the first time, probably the only time they would have had a chance to question um, Bush about uh, the invasion of Iraq. And they, uh, there's, as far as I recall, they didn't they didn't press him with any sort of um, uh, uh, serious or hard hitting questions when he was there, but sort of was slightly fawning and pitiful in the way that the English often are in the face of the American Empire. And afterwards, Robinson said, "Look, you misunderstand. My job is is not to question what these people say, but to um, provide a sort of uh, a channel whereby what they say." Uh, can be made public mm. and that, that is really at the heart of this it seems to me is this idea yeah, absolutely, yeah. that um that the very top the apex operators in in journalism aren't the kind of um nosy investigative journalists who sort of ferret around in bins but they're the people who literally make their lives with live alongside the news in the shape of senior politicians mm. and their advisors and they they're actually like internally there's a real difference i think in how status is ascribed in journalism because from the outside it, you'd think that someone who actually finds out stories that people want to keep secret you'd think that they'd be the most prestigious kinds of journalists to be like seymour hirsch or whoever it might be but actually the real like the real um kudos in the industry is being the sort of person who can just pick up the phone and speak to the prime minister's advisor yeah. Um, and who are, you know, on the inside. And what, what's interesting about the title of Peston's piece, which I think we touched on off air, is the idea of lifting the veil implies that, that they're, they're, they're trying to expose something that someone wants to keep hidden. Right. Yeah. But actually, it would be much more accurate to say my job is to lift the curtain at the theatre. Right. There's a, <laughs> so true, yeah. there's, there's a production of of newsworthy um activity and speech there's a drama of politics um that's taking place on stage and my job is to literally to lift the curtain to make it make that drama visible to the public um and the idea that as a stage ladies and gentlemen the brain of george bush (laughs) yeah exactly and the idea that as a stagehand you turn around to the audience and say by the way you know, Hamlet's bullshitting you here, right? It's just like that's not that's not within the rules of the of the of the convention. And I think if you see them as 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 it were, you know, technicians who are producing the news for you, um, you get you get somewhere towards w- what they think they're doing, 
I think that's spot on. And and the thing is, it comes it it, it comes back to this question of like, well, what was actually the, the the thrust of Oborn's critique? And it was that actually the information that was being leaked was basically unaccountable. So like, if if you're not naming your source, then somebody <laughs> could be you know misinforming the public, and then you're relaying that information. But the thing is, as you say, is that then that it, this isn't information which somehow Peston is able to get his hands on that that, yeah. that, that those people do not want to be revealed like he yeah. he's acting as a conduit and that that is the basis of of Oborn's critique so when yeah. you're talking about fake news I mean you know you can have well, a broader I mean, you can have a broader structural critique of this in terms of like okay how is the news agenda being framed how are the issues understood but actually Oborn's critique is much much narrower than that it's just saying actually this is misinformation. So in this, in one of the cases he, he mentions, they talk about how a, you know, an inquiry has been opened into uh, people who are opposing uh, the Ben Act. You know, so I, I don't want to get into all the ins and outs of Brexit on this show, because God knows there are enough podcasts where you can get into that. But um, out to our colleagues in podcasting at Brexit cast. Yeah. Um, <laughs> made the difficult move to television. Um, yeah, which quite. Was, We'll no doubt be following them in due course. Um, yeah. Um, so what what uh, <laughs> what Oborn is saying is that actually that the, the, there wasn't even that inquiry didn't exist. I this was a completely inaccurate report report yeah. which yeah. had been put into the public sphere um, yeah. for a, for political reasons, right? So and of course, like and this, by the way, I mean just very quickly. I mean this is sort of like this is why the critique that o- Oborn is presenting is in some ways a, a conservative critique. Because in the piece, he says, you know, Cameron wouldn't have done this sort of thing. And he's arguing that there is a real qualitative change yeah. under the Cummings-Johnson regime in, in Downing Street. Yeah, I, I think that was a bit of a strange argument for Oborn, actually. Like, because, you know, he had a book on, I think it was called, like, The Rise of Political Lying or something. It was, yeah. It's, 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 its focus was very much on the Blair Campbell mm-hmm. um, modus operandi. And I think... You know, I think Oborn is comfortable with the idea that things were better a while ago and they've got worse. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that was actually the problem with the um, the Blair Campbell critique as well. I mean, you know, there, there was less. I mean, it was, I think it was a really good book considering the sort of political perspective it was coming from doesn't tend to produce things which are um, you know, so rigorously critical. Yeah. But that that was I, anyway, I think the weakness in his original critique yeah, of, yeah. of of Blairism and, and, it, and Campbell. And it touches on the, on the issue of fake news, doesn't it? It's the idea that this is a new phenomenon, um, whereas it's actually like the production of untruth and, and misinformation is a, is a constant um, uh, in, in, uh, in the, in the history of the mass media. Um, but anyway, I, 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 I seeing as you haven't read the, uh, the response by Peston that you, that you must do, um, I'm going to just give you a couple of quotes that I picked out that I thought you'd like. And like, so you you mentioned conventions, by the way, which is interesting because he talks about conventions in the piece. And he said, Peston says at one point, um, the conventions that govern political reporting in the UK may be arguably unfit for purpose, but they are what they are. <laughs> it's just like, and then he just moves on. You know, so he just kind of acknowledges that. And then right towards the end of the piece, he has this extraordinary section that even when I read, I, I, I thought of you, where he says, okay, so he's talking about um, the criticisms that are coming from Oborn and others about his his sort of style of reporting, which basically he, he defends as being, okay, I'm trying to help you understand what's going on with the government, right? So that there are things going on that I need to help expose you. I need to lift the veil or the curtain, as you would have it, um, and explain these problems. And I'm being criticised for that. And that, so this this is what he says. 
Uh, quote, I have a profound sense of deja vu about all of this. So did I, to be fair. Um, but his, he, he's going to hop back to something a little bit surprising. I was uh, barraged with complaints um, that I should keep my mouth shut in 2007-2008 when revealing that our banks were bust because it was felt that the British people would panic because they lacked the intelligence to understand what I was saying. I regarded such criticisms as contemptible and my position has not changed. So in Peston's mind, um, being criticised for relaying um, misleading information from the government is the same as being criticised for relaying accurate information about an un- a developing financial crisis, um, which is kind of extraordinary, really. But um, for some reason, that's the argument that he ended up with. But um, it is interesting, isn't it? Because the suggestion seems to be that, well, I was told things by important people then. Yeah. And, and people I'm... told me not to not to say those. Well, and, and... Other people said not to say them, but I, I said I relayed them anyway. Yeah. I'm now being told in things by consequences other people. be damned. Yeah. Well, not any consequences be damned, but like factual content be damned. Right. It's like I can say this because I've, I've been told this by a, you know, a senior city source, presumably. Presumably these were kind of authoritative voices in the financial. Well, that's sector. how that's how he became this um, big, uh, this big shot, wasn't it? Was he had yeah. these incredible sources in um in business and finance from yep. his time as a press journalist. And he, you know, he'd come to the BBC at a time when they wanted people who had that, that had these kind of contacts. And, you know, in a similar sort of way, I think, to uh, to Gilligan, when they brought him in, um, somebody who had those kinds of contacts and could break stories, you know, yeah. he, he was kind yeah. of known for that. But yeah, I mean... But what, it's, what, what's, what's crucial is that he didn't have... He's not claiming that he had any sort of independent understanding of the financial sector what he had was a uh, a range of contacts who could tell him could give him inside information of a kind yeah that's, a, that's exactly it yeah but, but, but that's very interesting isn't it because like yeah. what to you or i he's that the the analogy he gives is is the absolute inverse of what we would see as the criticism of what he's doing yeah but in, in his head it's exactly the same so because yeah. because most people would be like okay was that really happening, right? Were yeah. you holding people to account for something that had gone wrong or through some sort of like corruption or, you know, or whatever? Or, or were you exposing something that people didn't want to be exposed? I mean, in that case, he arguably was, right? Or at least a yeah. certain section of, um, of British capital. But yeah. yeah, in his head, like you say, he's, he's, it's exactly the same thing. It's, I, I have some sources who tell me something that is newsworthy yeah. by this particular sort of radar as to what qualifies right. as In virtue of their status, in virtue of their position in these sort of institutional hierarchies. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and this is, I mean, I think this is the, this comes back to what we were talking about in, in the first half, really about that research on the BBC's reporting, because the, the interesting questions that it doesn't touch on, the question of impartiality, the relationship between, you know, social power and um, authority and understanding the nature of these institutions, I think it, it really does show the limitations of the sort of journalism that Peston does. And I actually, I have to confess, I did, I did think he was one of the more interesting journalists around the time that he was doing that economics reporting. I mean, I wouldn't say that he helped me understood the financial crisis as such, but he did seem to, I suppose, the sort of embedded reporting that he had from the business elite seemed at least to be offering something which you didn't get from other coverage. It wasn't that you could listen to him and have a sense of really what was going on. Yeah. But, but he did have a lot of sort of 
colour and stories, yeah. which, which did seem to make him a serious sort of player. And I think for me, it I, I've been surprised how bad actually his political reporting has, has been. I mean, there was uh, something where he, he, he was reporting on the recent Labour conference um, and he's, he just described on Twitter the, the, the voting weights that existed between the unions and the membership uh, conference. It's that the way that he, and this is, you know, very basic information, which any Labour correspondent or any political correspondent should know. Mm-hmm. And the way he described this was, my source in the Labour Party. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, I mean, so what, you know, I was just like absolutely aghast at this when I read it, you know, just like mouth open. I was like, hold on a sec. Like, he actually relies on the basic kind of expertise, you know, that, that normally you'd be using to be able to make sense of something. That's how that's how dependent he seems to be, um, judging by that, on his sources. And, and in a way, that's another sort of level of embedded journalism, isn't it? Like, because I, I think at its best, that kind of embedded journalism, you want to be, you want to know that world, but not be of it, don't you? Yeah. So yeah. You, you need to understand. I, I So I have a certain limited sympathy with this argument for journalism, for this sort of journalism, because you do, you do need to understand how these worlds operate in order to help people make sense of them. And I do think that, that some proximity is useful in that. So like when... So, you know, like, say something like uh, the BBC, like people who have done anthropological work, you can get a real, which I haven't, can get a real feel for the nuts and bolts of the BBC. If you can do that whilst maintaining, um, you know, an informed account of what the end product is and and a sense of the external politics of the organisation. I mean, to my mind, that's the way I'm just the reason I'm talking about the BBC is just sort of something that makes sense to me in terms of how I think about this is like knowing that knowing the world in in a more sort of concrete way and having the distance to my mind is what would make for good you know reporting or academic work or 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 whatever i mean i suppose it you know it probably applies to like art as well i I guess um so there is i think what i'm saying is i think there is a defense of this sort of journalism but i don't think the sort of journalism we have is really living up to that um well and again i think you know Person is someone who was, as you say, in, like in, embedded. I think in in the financial sector so doesn't quite catch it because I think at one point he was involved in a finance startup, so he's sort of been involved as a um, as a participant in the financial merry-go-round. Um, and I think they he was probably someone who was, as it were, naturalised within it to a degree um that meant he got he got on very well there was little in the way of social distance mm. that probably explains why he was able to get information um into the public sphere that other other bbc journalists couldn't because he just oh, yeah. knew these people better yeah. and and frankly got on with them better i mean he there's mm. a cringeworthy book he wrote just before the crisis saying that oh well you know at the end of the day um, these people like Philip Green, they do make a lot of money and they do employ a lot of people. Um, and he spent a lot of time with Philip Green, I think, um, when he was when he was researching that book. So he's quite embedded with um, these city figures. Did you see, Dan, did you did you see his comment on um, Tim Bell when Tim Bell died? No, was it like he was a towering figure? So like. Okay, so for readers who don't, because I think this quite really does illustrate your point. Like for readers who don't know who Tim Bell is, I mean, we could do a whole show on Tim Bell, but he was kind of like the 
how do you describe him, Dan? It's not like the archetypal Thatcherite PR guy, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. Yeah, he was a really important figure in that kind of nexus of communicators like the Saatchi brothers, um, uh, who were working very closely with with Thatcher, um, uh, both you know electioneering, but then in sort of um, influence peddling yeah, and that sort of thing. Influence yeah, so he's he's one of these kind of yeah sort of part PR advertising man, part lobbyist very close to Thatcher. Um, anyway, he, he died recently. And, um, and and Tim Bell once said, the only talent I have is charm. And and Mark Collingsworth, who's a journalist I know who, who wrote a book on him, described him more or less in these terms. You know, I think he said rather, well, maybe I think this is being a bit, probably a bit too flattering to Bell, but like dogs would cross the road to be petted by him. You know, he, he had this ability to make people like him. Mm-hmm. And he, he said that that was what he built his career on, you know. So he said, my own talent is charm. And when he died, uh, Robert Peston uh, tweeted, I'm very sad about the death of Tim Bell. He had too few scruples about who he would represent, but he was the best company, always honest with me, enormous fun. He was a pirate of the old school. Almost no one left, almost none left. And the world is poorer for their passing. You know, so he got on well with these people, but he was also charmed by these people as well. You know, I, I think that's an extraordinary well, in the context of, of of who Bell was and what his kind of approach was, I, yeah. I mean, when you think of like the difference between that and Peter Oborn's kind of hostility, professional hostility to PR people, which I think is seems to be relatively rare in journalism now, doesn't it? But I think there is a certain older journalist who that that but laments right, the, the relationship PR. between the PR man and the journalist should be one of like. Like it should be the relationship between the dog and the lamppost, shouldn't it? Right? Mm. It's like they and it, there you could hear in Pesson's tweet the lamppost sort of mourning the passing of the dog that used to pee on him. You know what I mean? It's like you shouldn't you shouldn't think there that you're on the same side. Um, yeah. That, I mean, but that's the thing. Like, they are they are part of that that nexus of interests and and that world that they move in, aren't they? And what's yeah, they are. and I suppose what's interesting is that. Yeah, o- Oborn is sort of an insider, outsider of, well, I guess he's uh, sort of turned on them slightly, hasn't he? I mean, I don't think, he, I'm not saying he was ever cosy with PR people. He was probably, he's probably comfortable in a, a slightly more old fashioned kind of milieu, isn't he, than, than, than existed in the aftermath of Thatcherism, I would guess. I mean, I'm just <laughs> imagining the social world of Peter Oborn here. So yeah, I think that's, it's, hard to, it's hard to sort of piece that together because it's hard to know to what extent it still exists um mm. a, a you know a world of you know apparently disinterested grandees um and i, I wonder whether that was ever really um a, a, you know an operant fact in the british, british system um but certainly he he you know he he, he was critical of cameron as a, a slick pr man wasn't he mm. um, and uh has always been hostile to to the sort of techniques of news management. Um, just for the final point about the, you know, the nature of an embedded journalist and the, mm. the tensions between proximity and critical distance. I mean, there's any, I think there's a very useful um, distinction to be made between um, someone like Peston and someone like Julian Tett, who was very, you know, very much embedded with um, financial elites um, as a columnist at the FT, but had a sense, an outsider's sense of like, what are these people saying and what are they not saying, right? Mm. What are the, you know, she, you know, she's talked about zones of social silence. 
and she picked up on the the sense that there were things that 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 people were very voluble about and there are things that they were kind of skating over yeah and that that was enough as it were of a of a sort of of a critical lever for her to be one of the few journalists at the ft who said yeah something's going to go fucking wrong quite soon right was she was she trained as an anthropologist or i just imagine yeah, that? No, she was i think yeah um and she treated them you know because of her training she treated them as a um as something of a tribe you know mm. something uh, you know as a sort of a group of people with their own codes their own taboos or their own um uh, rituals and so on and, it, and you know it speaks to the lack of cognitive diversity or or educational diversity in the british system that someone like her is able to make this sort of extraordinary sort of break with the the herd basically because she's just not completely saturated in a kind of a sort of i don't know english literature or ppe kind of approach to the world history as well i mean i think like conservative history is the other one that feeds into british journalism isn't it you're right i mean history is is like the great factory for producing far-right shitheads um (laughs) it's a shame i mean i i think like history at best is such a good discipline but i mean yeah it does seem like clearly there's something clearly very fucking wrong with the way they teach but um but again, like on, you know, I was listening to Chris Morris has got a new movie out. Um, so this is media still on. We're still on topic. But um, he did zoology at, um, at university. And it's like, my God, where, where does this incredible kind of insight and sort of, you know, dissident intelligence come from? It's like, well, he didn't study the humanities at Oxbridge. You know, mm. it's like that's that's an, that's almost enough for, for people to be like, what an amazing original point of view um because hardly anyone the thing is like the way i mean i suppose the thing is there there is a link between the way they do journalism and the way these disciplines are taught isn't it which is that basically history history is the history of uh great men usually who you know uh, managed to like uh capture the direction of of politics and their moment through the force of their personality or through savvy political maneuvering or whatever it may be and there's very little sense you know i mean this is i'm sure very familiar to critique to to a lot of people in that that sort of great great man version of history that that there's more more at stake here and that that very clearly gets replicated in the, the ways that they do journalism and the way they think about politics as well and i think you know that and and particularly the way in which the the sort of speed with which they seem to be absorbed into the world of Westminster, which, yeah. you know, I mean, I, I, I find it one of the strange things is that, that anybody would be comfortable or exhilarated by that environment. I just find kind of bizarre, really. Yeah. Um, yeah. But of course, you need you need to be sort of educated into it, probably from quite a young age. And you can think of like, again, uh, this, I think, class plays quite a role as well. I mean, you know, you don't have to be like of the elite as such. But if you're surrounded by the sort of furniture of the British establishment, it probably just feels much more comfortable to you. Like, um, yeah, I mean, I think whole you, world. You, you, you have to want you have to want it enormously mm. to, to, to be able to make the, the necessary sort of dispositions. Um, and that, yeah, as you say, that all will often come from being born into that milieu um and seeing yourself as a, as a competitor participant within it from a very young age um or 
you know, being pressed, you know, having your nose, pressing your nose against the glass mm. and looking to be, you know, in the, you know, in the, at, the, at the table, exchanging repartee with the, with the, with the high ups kind of thing. Mm. Um, and you're right. It's, you know, it's personally, I've always found it kind of, kind of rebarbative. It's always kind of, it sort of disgusted me um, mm. because I just never bought into the idea that these were towering figures um, who were in some way the authors of events. Um, it always seemed um, like intellectually derelict um, to sort of think in terms of these these towering personalities who are, are in some deep sense in charge. And the I, and the sort of, yeah, the kind of, I don't know, the, the, this sort of analytical self-harm you'd have to do to actually think like that. <laughs> it's made me think... Why would one ever do, do you know what I mean? Why would one be wrong for your, why would you be wrong your whole life? What, what possible? Just well, to... I think there's good reasons for that, though, aren't there? I mean, the obviously the material rewards for being. Yeah, no, I, and, I, and, I, and I speak now from my, my modest home in, a, in one of the less expensive parts of Kent. And I think maybe, maybe uh, I, I, yeah, there, there are material arguments for doing well, it. The, I mean, speaking of which, and not wanting to, you know cast any aspersions on anyone's uh character or anything but the other aspect i wanted to talk about was um amal rajan's interview with peter oborn which was doing the rounds on on twitter so if people don't know who who amal rajan is he's the bb he presents the media show which is sort of like the bbc's counterpart to media democracy so he's he's <laughs> he's like the equivalent he's like me and dan combined um that's and, and I would I would settle for for having half his salary, I think. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Once again, please like us on uh, on, <laughs> <laughs> on the platforms and we will be we will be half there. I wonder what his salary is actually. So Amal Rajan um edited the independent um for a Russian oligarch who who owns it and and now presents the, the, the media show. Um, but actually, Peter Oborn um, wasn't interviewed for the media show. Um, uh, he was Amal Rajan was was standing in for another BBC program, and he ha- and he had Peter Oborn on just to, to to discuss this article. But it, I mean, we 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 put a link to it in in the uh, in the show notes, and I'll put in a, a link to um, Peter Oborn's article and and the best in response as well. But like the exchange, you you had to listen to is is absolutely extraordinary. Um, we we prob- we'll probably put a snippet of it in at the end of the show as well. But it it starts off with uh, Oborn, so he he's welcome to the show. And uh, he, and Amal Rajan is quite he's quite a professional broadcaster. You know, he's he's quite a cool customer. He describes in fairly sort of crisp terms what the argument is, and then immediately the two of them, it, it's very clear that Amal Rajan is is going to critique um, Oborn um, as if he's holding a politician to account. Um, and not give him the time of day from day one. So he, he actually says to him, there's a lot of journalists who'd be upset by what you've written, who would say that you're spreading a corrosive and cynical attitude towards journalism. And then there's this there's this kind of extraordinary exchange there where he basically, I mean, it's very clear that what Oborn's done, which is the, the absolutely key faux pas, really, is to name particular yeah. journalists. Yeah. So at one point, he talks about Tim Shipman, because Tim Chipman, who's who's at, is he at the Sunday Times or the Times? I think it's, is he Sunday Times, um, or maybe he's both. I don't know. You know? Uh, it's an interesting question, Tom. 
I am I'm, I'm something of an expert in Shipman. Um, <laughs> no, I have no idea. I don't yeah, well, either way, he's, he's their he's their big shot kind of um, political uh, reporter, and, and he's he features in the Oborn story. And 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 Rajan leaps his defense, describes him as an outstanding journalist, one of the people you had to read on a Sunday and so on and so on. Um, but he's obviously very annoyed about the fact that Oborn has mentioned particular people. He, he leaps to their defense. Yeah. And then he says, um, oh, you say in your piece that yeah. you've approached newspapers um, to try and publish its story, but no one wanted to publish it. Yeah. Who have you approached? Yeah. And like, so it puts the question to him. And yeah. then when Oban says, well, I've done the rounds of Fleet Street or whatever, you know, yeah. use some sort of uh, cliche to sort of say, oh, you know, I can't talk about who you yeah. know, I have conversations with. He accuses him of, he says, you're guilty of hypocrisy because you're saying that, um, you know, journalists shouldn't be using anonymous sources, but you won't name the editors who have turned down your story. It's just, yeah. it's a, honestly, it's an absolutely bizarre exchange. And at one point he says to uh, Peter Oborn, what I put to you, Peter, you know, in the in the sort of style of an interrogation. John Humphreys, John Humphreys for the win. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Well, it's that sort of, it's that barrister bluster, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I guess it, it sort of comes to the BBC. Um, I forget the guy's name. Oh, God, it's terrible recollection. Both of these. Uh, was it Robin, so, Robin Day? Was he a journalist? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, just, one of us work. Anyway, Robin Day sort of pioneers that John Humphreys style, doesn't he? And he he was a barrister. Um, and I guess, yeah, they're sort of part of the establishment that are able to sort to be rude to powerful <laughs> people, basically. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he, he sort of, I put to you, Peter, and so on. He says, I think, I think it's out of order. And then at some point, um, Peter Oborn sort of, basically turns on, on on Rajan and he accuses him of being a, a client journalist yourself and and um and a crony journalist and says it's time this uh, system was exploded so it was kind of yeah it was extraordinary extraordinary sort of public scenes I think between um but it's interesting isn't it because you know Oborn is doing precisely what Peston claims to be doing in the sense that he's lifting the veil. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. He's actually showing something of how power works and, and exposing the mechanics, the personal human mechanics of power at work. You know, whatever you think about the, the journalists that he names, they're very powerful individuals in virtue yeah. of their, their kind of institutional position. And, Oborn is challenging them in the way that they're exercising their power. And the response of Amal Rajan, as you, as you describe it, is to say, this is corrosive, right? This is undermining public trust in journalism, right? Because the point about, I mean, the point about that, that, that idea is that whatever we do is okay. Um, and it's up to us to maintain the facade so that the audience don't have any sense of what's really going on. Right. Yeah, no, you're right. I, I've not thought about it before, like that, but it is it's precisely the opposite of what yeah Peston claims that they're doing, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, and and I think in that in that respect, actually, well, one of the things that journalists tend not to do actually is to talk about the facade of politics. You know, to um, how meaningless some of it is in terms of you know the the actual players themselves. I mean, I remember you remember when. Um, the the previous general election, um, the one the, the 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 shock victory for for Cameron, oh, yeah. um, 
There was some discussion, the, which is quite the unusual. The Demering of the Melts. <laughs> yeah. There was some dis- there was some discussion, which was unusual, about um, the extent to which the election was stage managed, and there was this kind of debate amongst journalists. You know, to what extent should you be referring to the fact that these are staged events, yeah. right? And again, this comes back to this uh, your analogy about the curtain there. You know. Some journalists did do that. So I think Cardiff did some research on um, the 2015 general election and they found that like, I think particularly Channel 4, but sometimes on the BBC, they would explain to viewers that this was basically, you know, a fake event. It was part of um, the election cycle or they would show, you know, a perspective on the cameras, which would show that actually there wasn't a big crowd there, you know, in front front of camera, and they had just gathered together some supporters in the warehouse or whatever. But in the main, that that didn't happen. And actually, I think what's interesting about that is that there are these debates around election time. And I think probably the reason for that is like, number one, the, 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 uh, the coverage gets much much more tight, you know, it gets much more controlled to the point that journalists kind of resent that because they get more, they get they get more blocked out than they than they usually do. And you can see this in war coverage as well. So like some of the criticisms that come from journalists around like the Falklands, for example, like they they take it as sort of a slight that then that then they're no longer a given um, access as as access becomes tightened. But they're also they're under a lot more pressure the journalists themselves. You know how are you supposed to report these? The stakes get higher and they're yeah. more re- they're more regulated. And I think there's a lot of that exactly like you say is going on behind the scenes all the time. Because like the thing is with journalists is that they're not. You know, these aren't these aren't for the most part. I mean, apart from there are some honourable exceptions, but they're not for the most part stupid people. They're they're actually that there seems to be, I guess, like an intense sort of cynicism there where they, you know, it, it, they, they, they know that, for example, like pe- people are, are, are lobbyists or they're unprincipled or they're or they're liars. But again, you know, the, the facade sort of gets maintained, doesn't it? Um, with, Bro- with Johnson I, I, and, and Dominic Cummings, I guess it's come under stress because he's a particularly um, unscrupulous kind of character. I mean, well, not. I think it, I don't I don't even know whether it's the unscrupulous so much as his lack of willingness to ingratiate himself with that milieu. Right. He's, I think, personally quite a combative individual mm. uh, and he doesn't hide his personal contempt um, for journalists and for, you know, quite a lot of politicians. Um, Are we talking I, about Cummings here or uh, Johnson? Cummings. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, I totally agree with that. I, I was meaning Johnson. Oh, who, who's yeah. much more. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, I was I was going to say that. I mean, I don't know if you saw it, but there was a clip where um, uh, I think it's a Sky News journalist sort of chasing Cummings down down the road. And he just says, oh, people shouldn't believe anything on, you know, the TV or whatever. It's like fake news. And the journalist kind of aghast, you know, like uh, what what's on the news is fake. Yeah, it's just you make it up. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, he just doesn't give a shit. Um, and, uh, you know, he's that kind of like prickly kind of character who's again, sort of, he's like, he's, he's of this world, but he has a sort of seething contempt for it, doesn't he? Cause he sees a lot of them as mediocrities, I think, um, yeah, right. which I, I guess they've pushed back against, against that quite a lot. I mean, that, that must be, that must be part of why there's a bit more of a discussion around it. Um, I guess so, I guess so. but again, I think a lot of it comes down to, 
you know, the peculiarities of Oborn's position in that he is, a, you know, he's a major figure who's willing to kind of break a murder and they break these very tight rules about what can and can't be said. And mm. obviously, you know, he does it, he does it up to a point, right? He doesn't, he doesn't sort of get into the nuts and bolts of the editorial process, which is really, you know, where the power resides ultimately in, in the media. Um, and which is something that is under intense um lockdown in terms of what leaks to the public um about editorial decision making um but he's willing to um he's willing to open up some of this some of this process by which power um is able to talk out of two sides of its mouth at the same time by using these these essentially tame journalists and the response is you know from from what i can gather of uh, Amal Raj's interview is really is like a deep hostility Oh, yeah. I mean, it's absolutely um, it's absolutely plain. I, I, I mean, and what's interesting, you know, in, ter- in terms of the response, I mean, I, I, I don't think there's been a huge response from the press. You know, he, at least um, Oborn claims that he was locked out of the press, which was uh, why he'd um, why he'd published a piece, uh, Open Democracy. And then, um, you know, and then basically had to resign from his uh, position at the Mail. Uh, following this story, which Amal Rajan then retweeted afterwards, um, you know, and, and basically the way Amal Rajan then described it in the tweet was, you know, uh, you know, people, senior people just couldn't understand why he would have written something like this, you know, uh, and, <laughs> and and that's the way that um, that's the way that it, it has been received, you know, by by the media establishment yeah. was, first of all, ignore this. Yeah. Second of all, what on earth do you think you're doing? Yeah. You know, and and to me, I mean, I found it quite chilling actually listening to the interview because Amal Rajan, I think, is is quite is actually very. Sh- I think it's very sharp. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you know his his politics. He he doesn't wear on his sleeve, but that you know they're they're pretty. He's pretty clear clearly of the right, although not in you know he's not he's not really an out and out. He's not really a Tory type. Um, to, to, to hear and this is the guy who is kind of like the gatekeeper for the media talking about about itself yeah um to to have this person on in an immediate confrontation why are you saying these things why yeah. are you saying these things about good people why are you spreading cynicism about our profession right the, yeah. that 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 very overtly um not even defensive like offensive posture that was assumed there which seems to have been followed up with a certain kind of we don't know what's going on behind the scenes in terms of like, you know, um, Oborn's relationship to um, the male, but seems to have been followed up with some sort of breaking down of a professional relationship to some extent. Um, it's quite it's quite chilling, really. Yeah. Um, to see how that's how that's happening. And and um, I mean, I, I would imagine behind the scenes, a lot of people are, are quite rattled about it. But again, it comes back to what you were saying about the insularity of um of the BBC, which I think, you know, uh, applies to the profession more broadly. And we talked about this a lot on on the podcast about that kind of broad loyalty amongst British political journalists in particular to each other. Um, You know, that solidarity that exists, um, which makes any kind of critique very difficult. Um, Well, right. And and there is a sort of you know, there's a sort of um, minor version of this, in a way, in my experience of publishing my second book, where I, you know, I set out 
a set of what I, you know, I took to be systemic problems in the media and set out, you know, proposals for opening up precisely kind of editorial decision making to, you know, much more broad public participation. So, you you know, you do, you demystify um, the process of news and current affairs production by, like, bringing people in as as meaningful participants and i would speak to journalists i speak to relatively junior journalists um or relatively senior journalists about the the, about the book and about the proposals and they weren't they weren't immediately kind of hostile or defensive to them they were like this is really interesting i'll go and you know i think we should do something on this um and um and then they would they would go and talk to an editor or an executive or they, you know, they take it up the chain of command or whatever. Mm. And they'd come back and say, yeah, I've had a word and actually it's not for us really, you know, and it's like in a way, you know, a news operation has, they employ people to be curious and to be interested in things. And then they employ people to stop things from going out, getting, you know, going down, people being curious in the wrong kinds of ways. Mm. And as you go up the chain of command, you get closer to, you know, the kind of, you know, the Murdochian power that we talked about earlier, the real kind of juice. Yeah. Um, then um, they know that you're not supposed to talk about, like, the, the, the what goes on behind the veil. They know you're not supposed to talk about that's the one thing we don't discuss, right? They, they, well, the thing, it's a funny thing, you know, because like, the, on the one hand, they don't. But on the other hand, they love talking about their own jobs and each other's jobs in a certain context, right? So, like, Amal Rajan will have people from the media yeah. talking about things to each other and about their own profession, where yeah. it's very much locked down to a conversation, you know, between people who are very much insiders, yeah. having very informal, very sort of uh, free-flowing chats about the the challenges of their day-to-day working lives and the rest of it. Um, but again, it, it's, it, it's a particular kind of insider conversation where yeah. certain, it's just understood that certain things don't get touched on. And this is the thing about the way that the, the media operates is, on the one hand, you have to be an insider in order to even get anyone to pay any attention to you which is why Oborn got a response you know yeah. if, if, if 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 you know you or I or someone we knew had written exactly that piece yeah I mean it's just you know of course we wouldn't have been in, invited on by Amal Rajan's yeah. show yeah. um yeah and but the combination of you must be an insider with um a very precarious hierarchical um narrow structure yeah. means it's just it's just total lockdown isn't it because yeah, you it pretty you, much is yeah yeah i mean and the only way actually you can speak out is probably if you're in the sort of position that oborn is where you're probably i mean i guess of an age where you're you're pro- you've got some sort of retirement plan laid out for you so there's a little bit less at stake because the other person i think of who's who's done this um in his own way is nick davis who you know was at the guardian yeah um you know, when uh, there there are elements that I felt was m- missing from his critique, but he was, you know, he was he was very critical of um, his colleagues, particularly yeah. in, in News International, and he'd gone after them in, in a way that no other journalist had really, and he'd offered his own sort of structural critique in Flat Earth News. But again, it, it seems like that's the tiny sort of strata, you know, that uh, that is 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 able to sort of um, level this critique yeah. with, with all the li- with all the kinds of limitations i suppose that that come with that well uh, exactly because the only people who will speak out are 
people in late middle age um, yeah. who have had a very themselves had a very particular experience because because they, they're in order to have any weight they'll have to as you say still be prominent figures in some way yeah uh, most people you know most people who who have got their you know have got their eyes and ears open um who and who can understand what's going on and disapprove of it they're they're mangled up and spat out long before they get to that sort of that sort of seniority your point about the conversations that they endlessly have about like their shortcomings maybe they're not diverse enough maybe they're not this enough maybe you know the whole kind of that whole conversation are we too oxbridge dominate you know what i mean like that mm. again there's an air of hysterical displacement going on in the, in that conversation because they they love talking about stuff like that they love talking about the, how the fact they were, they didn't actually go to a particularly good public school or they didn't they went they were, didn't go to one of the smarter oxford colleges they love that right mm. Um, and it's almost like, again, they they leap on that opportunity to talk about their own their own profession in order not in order to sort of forget the fact that there's this huge space about how their institutions are actually structured, how they relate to state power, how they relate to corporate power that they just know they can't ever talk about. Um, so I think that, yeah, that this volubility. Oh, we love talking about ourselves in the media, don't we? Well, you do. You do in a way, but not in not entirely, like not in the round. You like talking about these aspects of your profession. And as you say, the kind of technical problems that you face. Um, I have slightly derailed the conversation there with um, with my last point. But no, I think it was a good point to end on, actually, unless we want to uh, string out the conversation even further. No, um, it's very good. I, I, I would like to stress the need for everyone listening to like and subscribe. <laughs> yeah, we couldn't stress this enough. The reason we're going to stress it, we stress it three times over two episodes is we've never done it before. We asked, we asked nothing of you people. We've literally never done it. And we, I think we've always, well, several times we've said we must do that. Um, I've always felt, Dan, that if the content's good enough, they will find an audience. <laughs> well, that's right. <laughs> and that's what so, like, I just think, like, if, if people aren't listening, and people are listening, we know that, because we, we see you, we see the metrics, um, That that's how good we are. You can measure the, the quality of the content by numbers, and that's the beauty of a market. It makes <laughs> it makes, it makes qualitative difference real and concrete and measurable. However paradoxically if you review us we will become better the content <laughs> the content will become better according to the algorithm so um if you do think we're good um then then do that um we would appreciate it <coughs> that's it will be back um it was uh, as i said from the start it was just uh just me and dan this week um but i enjoyed it and we will be back hopefully soon with uh, with a guest. Maybe not with a guest. It depends how things work out. But um... I, I'm quietly confident that we're going to we're going to be joined by um, by someone next week. But for now, we're going to say farewell. Yes. Bye, everyone.